You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Jackie Higgins, who is a writer and a filmmaker, and also the author of this book right here called Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. Uh, Welcome, Jackie. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, there's a lot of different ways that I could describe this book, but the thing that moved me the most, I think, was right at the beginning where you quoted Leonardo da Vinci. And I'd never heard this quote from (laughs) Leonardo da Vinci, but it really resonated with me where he said, that the typical person looks without seeing, listens without hearing, touches without feeling, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the reason why I found that fascinating is that as an economist, I always divide questions into kind of two different domains. One is whether or not things are all about trade-offs or whether or not there's like a win-win. And part of what your book is about is about trade-offs so that, you know, if you have more sensory capacity in one area, sometimes it means less sensory capacity in the other area. But there's this second notion, which is that you can seek out richness, right? And maybe discover potential which you didn't know existed. And one way to discover this potential is to look at things from outside perspectives. And in this case, looking at perspectives through the animal world. And although we could never really know what it's like to be a bat, right? There are some interesting things that we can take from these observations, which then turn we can turn back onto ourselves. And so some of these discoveries, like the amazing potential of our hearing and of our smell, probably would not have been discovered if we weren't pushed to those inquiries by comparing ourselves <laughs> to our, our competitors in the animal kingdom. So I love the construction of this book. And I mean, some of these inquiries are recent. I mean, you have to learn a little bit about the f- physiology in order for us to ask questions about ourselves. But that's, I think the idea of looking at the animals also is it gives us a bit of distance and coming back to that Da Vinci quote at the beginning, you know, every every time we wake up, it's a kind of boring Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever morning. And so it's the uh, used animals to try and just inject a bit of distance to our experience so that we could appreciate its richness. So that's, yeah, that's nice that you recognize that. I love that quote too. Well, it's also kind of, you know, with with Oliver Sacks, you talk about him a lot in the book, and he helps us to understand ourselves better by looking at people who either have some damage or deficiency or some kind of weird mutation that gives them a superpower, right? Those are alternative approaches to looking at ourselves from without, right? Yes. So I use both those approaches in this book. I mean, the animals are the main approach, but occasionally there are human parallels, as you say, with excesses or deficiencies. So both those approaches enabled me to think very carefully about each of our senses. And that's a question in itself. How many senses have we got? Aristotle said we have five, but current counts are 33 and upwards. I mean, it's a bit arbitrary, really, but it's certainly not five. And it slightly depends, well, it does depend on how you define sense. But each chapter I took, I had to decide which senses I was going to cover. And then I had to think about an animal that would somehow illuminate what that sense does for us through possibly looking at its physiology or its behavior and inject that little bit of distance so that we could reconsider ourselves. And each time I wrote a different chapter, 
I became completely obsessed, whether it was about smelling or balance. I mean, strange things started to happen to me. I remember when I was writing the balance chapter, I was hyper aware of my balance or the proprioception chapter, this idea of how you feel your body. I became hyper aware of these senses. And I loved Back to Sax, that story that starts my chapter on the dog and smell, where he tells this extraordinary tale of someone who wakes up one morning and thinks they're a dog and can smell the world like a dog. And it turns out that was him on some uh, some snitchery drug. But, you know, the point of that chapter was that we do have an amazing sense of smell. We just, we don't pay attention to it. So yes, if we pay attention to these senses, they become extraordinarily rich. Well, in a way, it's also, we don't really need them, right? I mean, I was having some conversations just last night with some friends and I said, do you know, it takes 45 minutes to adjust to complete darkness. And so we probably don't ever experience 45 minutes of darkness. So we don't even realize that we have these superpowers, right? We navigate the world and, you know, we use our our GPS. So our sense of direction, we don't even really test it. We have a label on the food, so we don't really need to use our sense of smell to figure out what it is. So, I mean, are all of these senses kind of use them or lose them to some degree or you use them? If you don't use them, then you lose an awareness of them. Yes, I don't think you lose them. You can refine them. I mean, senses take practice. If you dedicate practice to senses, if you're a someone who loves wine or scent or perfume, I'm sure that the part of your brain for identifying smells increases. I don't think you'd lose them completely. I mean, I, I, I actually recently reviewed a rather nice book. It's called The Darkness Manifesto, a plea for the fact that darkness is being lost around the planet. So I think at some point we were using our rods much more than we're using them today. So on moonless nights, they would have been that would have been a really important survival tactic for us to have been able to have seen what was around the corner. Well, I mean, at the beginning, you talk about the five senses that we all know and love. And you say, maybe there's 22, maybe there's 33. And I don't think there's any definitive way to determine how many there are. But it it does seem like our subjective experience of the world is shaped by those categorizations, right? Like, I mean, just like when we experience color, by putting name to these colors, it, it makes us experience them differently, right? There was a fascinating article I just pulled out of Eon magazine. I was reading just a couple of days ago talked about the fact that there was no word for blue in ancient Greek. So when Homer's describing the sea, he often typically described it as inky or inky red or wine coloured. And I think, uh, and the point of this article was that the ancient Greeks actually were just as interested in colours as they were in reflectance. So when he was talking about the wine coloured or the wine glassy sea, he was referring not to the colour of red wine, but to the fact that it was reflecting light. So yes, if your language and your culture imbues a certain way to perceive the world, that's as important as the sensors in our bodies that are firing and sending information to our brain. Well, now, of course, I want to dig into each of these senses, but one other overarching theme which I extracted from the book, it was, I guess, it showed up in multiple moments, is that sensation involves a sensor and a processor, right? And so you've got these sense organs, and then you've got your brain. And of course, it's within your brain that you experience all of these these senses. But it seems like there's a bit of a trade-off, right? So in the very first chapter, when you talk about the mantis shrimp, right, it has like all of these color receptors, 
but it, it, its brain is so tiny that it, it, it's almost like wasted. And we humans, we just have three different types. And yet we can see all these colors because we are, are presumably because our brain is capable of processing so much more information. Yes. So the um, mantis shrimp is this kind of fable that warns us to be careful about wondering what's going on inside the brain of another creature. Because uh, a couple of decades ago, when Justin Marshall discovered that this creature had 12 different color receptors in its eye. And to put that in perspective, typically we have three. We're trichromats and they're dodecachromats. And from that three, and I say typically, by the way, because also in the chapter I, I discuss the work of scientists looking for people with four uh, cones. But to, to come back to Justin's point, when it was discovered that this shrimp had 12 color sensors, from our three, we can see millions of different hues. And so people started to kind of wax lyrical with words like a thermonuclear bomb of color and all sorts of extraordinary and excessive ways of wondering what the shrimp might be seeing. And then just a few years ago, Justin asked his uh, postdoc to do some experiments on training. Very, she had to very patiently train a shrimp to respond to very narrow wavelengths, so very specific colours in exchange for a little bit of food. And um, they discovered that actually the, the shrimp can see uh, far fewer colours than we can. So it was a good lesson in, in being careful about uh, making assumptions about perception based on an animal's sensory capability. And so I guess there's two different approaches to figuring out what the animals are experiencing. One is to simply map out the kind of sense organs that they have. And there was one example in the book where you said that if you took all of the smell neurons that the, the dog has and laid them out, it would like encompass the entire dog and ours would only be like a little dot. So one way is to look at and look at all the different organs, but then the other is to get inside the brain somehow and see where all the processing is happening and how much of the brain is devoted to that processing, right? And so neuroscientists looking at smell would say that the brain is the place where that, so we may have far fewer receptors, a little bit like the shrimp tail, it's a kind of echo of that, far fewer receptors, but studies that have been done on how good we are at at fine dividing sense and recognizing sense and following sense. Some scientists at your university had some students down on their knees following a, a string dipped in chocolate to see how good they were at being dogs. So they were remarkably good. So we have fewer senses, but yes, there are very many areas in our brain that are dedicated to figuring out, to creating smell perceptions. And so, you know, one is the, the range of possible sensations. The other is the sensitivity. So some of the tests you describe look for sensitivity. And I think you said that we're capable of detecting a, a single photon, right? Is that right? With our, our rods? Yes, that's a study that was done. It's only one study. So it's, it's on the edge. Some of the scientists I spoke to are a little skeptical as, as to whether this would happen. But nonetheless, certainly when Selig Hecht was doing this back in the 50s, we can detect a few photons. So we're talking, we're, we're splitting hairs here. Our rods are extraordinarily sensitive. But as you were saying earlier on, we require quite a lot of time in a dark room to make sure that these rods are primed and waiting for a few photons. And I thought the other thing that was interesting is how we have difficulty teasing apart which sense is doing what. And there are a couple of, I mean, I think most people are familiar with how taste and smell are 
sometimes mingled and confused. But there was one example where you talked about how blind people can see how close they are, say, to a wall through their ears, right? And that we're actually doing this without even realizing it, right? Yes, we echolocate. An easy metaphor to slip into is this idea that blind people are seeing through hearing with the echolocation studies or with another, the artist who I spoke to who's blind, who claims he can see through feeling the world. And again, I talk about star-nosed moles that see through feeling the world or Goliath catfish that see through tasting the world. But of course, this metaphor of, of seas is for us. <laughs> Simply because we're so visual, it's impossible for us to comprehend how would one would go about absorbing the information about around us without having sight. So yes, seeing is, is particular to humans. And so what do we know about brain plasticity, right? So you mentioned Helen Keller, right, of course, who could essentially communicate by touch. And I guess we can't do an MRI on Helen Keller. <laughs> it's too late for that. But we do know that the parts of the brain that are normally devoted to some senses can be reassigned or, or reallocated, right? And it's making us think differently about the brain. So there was, I'll bring you back to the star-nosed mole and Eshraf, who is a Turkish artist who was born blind, so he's never been able to see. But he didn't let that stop him. I mean, he feels the world. And I think as a mode of communication, when he was trying to connect to the world and connect to people, he started to draw. And I think it became like a language for him to try and understand um, what the world was like and how other people consumed the world. Anyway, a few years ago, he was at Harvard having a brain scan, having that MRI you were talking about. And he was inside the scanner and he was feeling little objects and then he was drawing them on his chest. So he was doing this thing of feeling and, and drawing. And when he was feeling these objects, certain parts of his brain would light up, which the neuroscientist who was conducting the study said had, a, had one of his colleagues walk through the door and not known who was inside the scanner, they would have said, oh, look, here's an image of someone looking at something because his visual cortex was uh, lighting up when he was feeling the world. I mean, we've decided that that part of the brain is called the visual cortex. But for Eshraf, it's his way of mapping space and mapping three dimensions. And then there's been some fascinating studies that kind of spun off the back of this, where the very same neuroscientist who was involved in that study, who I talked to, asked people whether they would be happy to be blind for a week. And he put very proper blindfolds on them. He even put a little bit of photographic paper underneath the blindfold to ensure that they wouldn't cheat. So he knew that if it hadn't been exposed, they'd basically not seen for a week. And in that process, he started to teach them to use Braille and started scanning their brains. And within a day or two, this is how neuroplastic our brain is, Within a day or two, new kind of neurons started making, new connections occurred between neurons. And the brain scan showed that when these people were uh, feeling again, touching Braille, that their visual cortex was lighting up. So yes, I mean, we've just given that part of the brain a label called the visual cortex, but to a star-nosed mole, it's probably the somatosensory cortex, the touch part of the world. So it's up for grabs, the brain, according to, you know, what sense it is that the creature is using. Yeah, it makes me wonder whether we should have some cross-training for the brain, right? It's like, you know, we go camping to see what it's like to be away from modern conveniences. 
what if we could spend some time suppressing certain senses in order to heighten the others just as a, you know, some people take psychedelics, but th- this is, would be sort of a non-pharmaceutical way <laughs> to explore heightened senses, right? It's a lovely idea. Interestingly, what happened when these people put the blindfolds on, and this is very common with sensory deprivation, the same thing happened in my sound chapter when people were put in Baronex box, which is essentially a blindfold for your ears. It's a box where you can't hear the outside world. In both these cases, our brain starts making up stories as if you were on hallucinogens. The people who had blindfolds after a day or two, they started to hallucinate and see things that weren't there. One apparently um, stood in front of the mirror and said they saw themselves. (laughs) They couldn't see themselves. They had a blindfold on. Um, But they saw themselves wearing the blindfold. Curious. And people in Baronet's box would start, also start to hallucinate sounds. So these are sensory deprivation. But I think once you get beyond that, then yes, you have to rely on your other senses. And like Sachs found when he was smelling the world, sniffing the streets of Manhattan, (laughs) when you start to rely on these other senses, they are immensely rich. There's a whole new world for you to explore. Well, one of my favorite images is the homunculus, right? And so most of us have, have seen these little homunculi, right, with the ginormous hands and big faces and the really small torsos. And so this is an image that repeats in your book and in a couple of ways. One is you talk about how these other animals, like the star-nosed mole, there's the staronculus, right, <laughs> which have a very different shape. Who knows how they're pronounced? Yeah. The platypunctus. I, I wanted a picture. I was hoping you could... Where's your illustrator, right? Yes. You needed that. I know. I, that would be beautiful. Actually, one of the plans for this book potentially is turning it into a children's book with lots of pictures. And it. Do, I suppose that's the, my background, having made wildlife films and science documentaries. Maybe the way I told the stories is quite visual. I don't know. But I definitely absorb stories in a visual way. And so, yes, where are the diagrams? Well, I was going to say, I mean, I did see this, these diagrams of the star-nosed molunculus, and effectively it's a huge star with a tiny little mole attached to the end because all of its somatory, most of its somatosensory information is coming from this star, which has so many touch sensors, the very same touch sensors that I've got on my hand. But as um, Ken Catania, who studies these creatures, said, you have to imagine it's five times the sensitivity of the palm of your hand squeezed into your the top of your little finger. That's how densely these touch sensors are jam-packed on its little star. Well, the other way in which this image comes up is when you talk about humans and you talk about their sense of touch, this homunculus that we're all familiar with, it's only one type of touch that, that's being described. And if you looked at the other types of touch, you'd have a very different kind of shape of this little homunculus, right? And so maybe you could talk about those different types of touch because we all combine these very different sensations into a single word, right? Yes. Well, I think you're describing... So, well, first of all, there are two types of... I split touch into two types of touch, two big headings of touch. Within One of them is the discriminative touch, this idea that you take a walnut and you roll it around in your hand and you can feel its roughness, and you can feel the corrugations, and you can feel the size of it, and you can feel the curves. And if you perhaps put it in your pocket, you can feel your fingers being stretched, the skin being stretched by it. Different sensors for discriminative touch will be involved in that. 
But there is another sense of touch, which is called affective or emotional touch. And this, I mean, I was expecting touch to be quite a pedestrian story. I thought I knew a lot about touch. And I was completely blown away by how little we know about touch and what scientists are uncovering right now. So they're looking at the skin and Francis McGlone, who's one of the scientists who's doing this research, had written a paper where he bemoaned the fact that nearly all the touch research had been on discriminative touch, but there's this other form of touch. And it's not on our hands, really. It's mainly on the hairy parts of our body. So if you think of the homunculus, it's on a very different... In fact, he also, he redrew the human body and it emphasised places where his neuron that he's just discovered is found. And you end up with a completely metamorphosed human again. So he and his team have discovered this other fibre, and it's probably one neuron amongst many, that basically fires if you run your finger over your skin. So you put a light touch and you're running it across your skin slowly. And typically it fires best at body temperature. So it's like a caress sensor. I think Lyndon, actually, you mentioned Lyndon when we were talking before the podcast, David Linden, I think he called it a caress sensor. And I think it's a lovely name for it. I call it the pleasure center because I'm talking about pleasure and pain. Well, it's related to grooming, one would think, right? Exactly, exactly. So you would imagine, you know, in all those bonobo chimps, that's exactly, it's probably involved in social bonding. I mean, this is the thing. So Francis has now found this and he's like, what does it do? What's the point of it? And he talks about Robin Dunbar's work on baboons and grooming and social bonding. He talks about the importance of mother-baby relationships. He talks about, I mean, again, this is something I didn't know about touch, but I suppose it's evident. It's one of the first sensors to come online in the womb. So if you can imagine the fetus, the embryo is covered in little lanugo hairs, and you've got the swirl of the amniotic fluid around this baby. And all of that is maybe that's imprinting upon the baby some form of knowledge of its body, some form of embodiment, probably connected to proprioception, who knows? But there are so many questions about this. And actually, I finished writing this during the COVID epidemic, when we were all isolated in our little bubbles and very little touching going on, very little social kind of interaction going on. And Francis was absolutely convinced that this will cause problems because this lack of stimulation of this particular sensor will have ramifications. So touch was really surprising. We're just skimming the surface of the sense. Yeah, and I guess with uh, massage, I mean, that's the popularity of massage is that it's uh, effectively all about touch. And in athletic circles, they've moved from massage being provided by humans to massage being provided by equipment. (laughs) So in terms of maybe muscle stimulation, it probably has the same impact, but it's missing that ingredient, right? Of human touch. But exactly. Remember that third ingredient that Francis said that has to stimulate this neuron fires best at body temperature. So when the, the stroker is alive. Well, there's another thing, which is that a lot of these sense organs get multi-purposed, right? So our ability to understand and feel time is done with our eyes, right? And I think that was another fascinating discovery that happened not too long ago. But then our sense of balance is also happening inside our ears. So these organs seem to 
they multitask. And balance, and so those are the organs of balance. But if you think of movement and our sense of balance that way, balance also involves the eyes and also involves proprioception. So yes, they certainly multitask. And these are, so you've mentioned a couple of senses that are working beneath our radar, our conscious radar. When I started researching the book, I knew I wanted to do a chapter on time and I was trying to find my way into it. And Ron Douglas, who is the gentleman who did the work on the spookfish and rods, so he's right up at the top of the book, said, well, you must speak to my colleague, Russell Foster, because Russell discovered or discovered essentially how our eye is used to sense light and that keeps our body clocks on time with the turn of night and day. So that became my time story. And that was fascinating. I mean, only recently, because of Russell's work, people who are blind are now, even though they can't see when they're walking outside, they are very much advised to go outside and let light pour into their eye because that's really important to keep their body clock and their head on time with night and day, their body and their head. So light hits. So Russell did these extraordinary experiments to show that light travels into the eye and rather, obviously it hits rods and cones, which is where we get perception of the world about us. But it also hits a cell that he discovered, which basically feeds information back to a part of our brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this is the master clock, the kind of conductor of the orchestra of every single clock in our body. And remember that extraordinary Nobel Prize work that discovered that every single cell in our body has a body clock. So that was that was mind-blowing, this idea that your eyes, yes, as you said, your eyes serve more than one purpose. So time and also balance, yeah. Well, that's the subject of your new book. So a couple of, you know, extra senses I have to ask you about. So there is a chapter, the chapter on moths, where you mentioned pheromones. And why is, this seems to be such a disputed thing. I guess it's because we haven't really identified the mechanisms by which it operates in humans or might operate in humans. But at least from a behavioral point of view, it seems like there's something going on, right? No, it's a real hot potato. And typically they're always referred to as proposed or perhaps maybe there's a big question mark over whether humans have them. Because in animals, it hijacks free will, perhaps. I mean, if, if animals have will, but the fear is that it would hijack our sense of free will. But from, I, you know, I was trained as a zoologist. And if you look at the animal kingdom over the last few decades, I mean, the pheromones have been found working across every class of animal. So many studies have been done. To me, I think it'll be inevitable. If we didn't have pheromones, we would be the only animals on the planet that don't, right? Yes, yes. So where's the sense in that? But it's just, I think it's just got a bit of a colourful history, pheromones. The great pheromone myth, there's been some great books debunking it all and all the studies that have been done on it. And I think because there's too many adverts online saying, buy your pheromone here and attract any woman or any man you would like. <laughs> so there is good reason. But there was a study that hadn't quite concluded, but was looking at, was revealing very tantalising early evidence for human pheromones. This is beyond the Martha McClintock studies about women synchronizing their menstrual cycle, which has been contested by some. But the really interesting work seems to be coming back to babies and again, and breastfeeding again. And that's perhaps the mothers release a pheromone because the idea is that a pheromone isn't a personal 
signature that I'm releasing, it's literally, you could take that from me and give it to any lady and the same thing would happen to her baby, to her. And it seems to be women, just like rabbits, it's been proven in rabbits, women are producing a pheromone that the babies just instantly look for. And that, I guess, and that would be, that to me would be a strong candidate because this is when we are at our most vulnerable, when we're babies. And so any chemical help that can act as a guide and doesn't require much thought, but is a like a landing strip with someone waving you in <laughs> where to get food. If you don't eat, you're in trouble. So I think this will turn out to be perhaps the first cast iron human pheromone discovered. Now, I mean, it seems like we, we have an inherent skepticism, right? Like any time, I mean, we keep discovering all of these new sense organs and sense uh, sensory nerves, but it seems like the burden of proof is always on the person who's proposing this type of sensation. Is, is that because we think of this as like ESP, right? If someone says, hey, maybe we can detect magnetic fields. It's like, oh, no, that's like ESP. Right? So everybody's very skeptical of it. Yes, maybe. And the time has been called the sixth sense, proprioception, a seventh sense. Yes, perhaps. I mean, I, I recall Russell Foster talking to me about the reticence he received in the scientific community when he suggested that there was another light sensor in the eye that was helping us guide our sense of time. And he was, people were outraged. So what's going on there? I, I think the eye was one of the best um, studied organs in the human body. And the idea that they'd missed something horrified people. Anyway, he, he, you know, it turned out to be right, and he 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 provided the kind of cast iron proof. Um, but yes, I think you're right. We are reluctant somehow to imagine that we are rather wonderful and surprising. When you have a whole chapter on the cheetah, which is really about balance, and and I found that chapter to be fascinating. And of course, one of the points is that humans are remarkably good at this, and far better than most of our primate brethren. And I found this surprising because one would think that to climb trees and go from branch to branch, one would need a lot of balance capacity. But it's really this idea of walking that is profoundly difficult, right? Something we do every day and we've taken it for granted, but it's an ex it's one of the most extraordinary balancing acts in the animal kingdom. Every step we take is a kind of tip forward into a smash on the floor if you don't get your foot out, out in front of you in time. That was a delightful story. And that was one of the few stories where I took it back into our ancestry because some really interesting studies had been done on early hominids and balance organs and shapes of balance organs. And Fred Spohr had done this, had this really clever thought because they're encased in bone, you could actually look at the evolution of our balance organs. And he theorized, because there's a big debate in paleobiology about when we started to walk on two legs. And he theorized, oh, I'll have a look at the balance organ and see what happened in that and see if there's any change in that during our, our crisscrossy lineage. And sure enough, he found Homo erectus had a very different type of balance organ that made him and her much more sensitive to the dimension that enables you, the axis that enables you to balance better when you're on two legs. Now, in that chapter, there was one fact that really confused me. And this had to do with the ballerinas. I just saw a ballet the other night. And we think of ballerinas and, and dancers as having really good balance. And, and so one would think that the part of the brain responsible for balance in them would be 
more developed, right, and occupy more space, kind of like the hippocampus of the British taxi drivers, right? But they found the opposite, and this is confusing, right? How is that possible? It's completely counterintuitive, isn't it? It's because they're using proprioception, so many other senses, and they have a great sense of their body that the balance becomes less important. I mean, I've watched ballerinas train. A friend of mine has been involved in the Royal Ballet. And I've watched ballerinas train and choreograph as the choreographer kind of moves between them. And they dance in slow motion of what the movements that they're doing. And the choreographer was moving their body or giving them a command whereby they would adjust their body. And I remember thinking these two ballerinas, ballet dancers, had exceptional balance. But I think it was an embodiment, a kind of knowledge of where their body was and what it was doing that far exceeded mine and control. So they were relying on more senses and more control, so they didn't need to rely on this kind of autopilot? I mean, is it treatment or selection? I mean, one, one also thinks that if, in order to be successful, ballerina, you, you, you can't get dizzy, right? I mean, if you get dizzy, then you're toast as a ballerina, right? Yes. And so that's what, and so the study showed that they didn't get dizzy. So maybe by shrinking it also, well, it, by shrinking it, it also reduces their dizziness. And there are a couple of things. So the magnetic, so there are a couple that are still a little bit speculative, right? And so there's one chapter where you were talking about our ability to maybe navigate by reading magnetic fields, right? And the fact that birds can do this, I mean, I was astonished. And we all know that all of the light is potentially killing off insects. We all know that the sound in the ocean is killing off the whales. But, you know, there seems to be some evidence that maybe AM radio and all the stuff that's coming from our refrigerators might actually be interfering with what these birds do. So, so first of all, tell me a bit more about what these birds do. And then is there any evidence that, that humans can read the magnetic field of the earth? This is probably the least proven sense that translates to us, but I, I wanted to include it because... It's back to this idea also that some really interesting cutting-edge research is happening on the animal side of the story. And there is one man in MIT, Joe Kirschfink, who has been doing human studies and is convinced that we have this capability that I explore. I'm, it's the sense I'm least convinced about. That said, there are two theories as to how these birds do it. And one is Kirschfink's theory and, and others' theory, which is there are little magnetite crystals inside our cells which basically swivel like compasses to find magnetic north and somehow inform the, the bird's brain which direction to fly in. And then there's, a, there's these extraordinary studies coming out of Oxford, among other places, but it's a kind of international collaboration. And I was speaking to a gentleman at Oldenburg University who was doing the behavioural studies associated with this. And this is the idea that the bird's eyes have these little proteins in them called cryptochromes, and these respond to light. And in that reaction, somehow, basically, little states are created that might enable them to, to detect the magnetic field. And so what this means is, as a, as a bird, and, and, and my, my star of the chapter is the Godwit, which is this marvellous story of this bird that basically flies 11,000 kilometres in eight days, nonstop. It's the longest nonstop migration known. And the question crops up whereby, how is this bird navigating when it's a cloudy night, there are no stars, there's no moon, and it's pitch black? And the theory is that it's using this ability to navigate using the magnetic fields. But even during the day, the theory is 
the bird would use its cones and its rods to kind of see this vast landscape of sea. But then overlaid with that, they might also, this is all theoretical, but it's fascinating, they might also have some kind of layered image that enables them to know which way is north and which way is and which way to head. So it's fascinating. And the studies done with regards to us uh, that, that Joe did in MIT, he did some studies whereby he measured people's brain waves as they were almost locked in a kind of sensory vault, a place where their senses were not being used, sensory deprivation area. And he swiveled kind of magnetic fields around them. And their brains, their brain waves did change. So his theory is, is this is a dip in alpha rhythms when we see things, when we hear things. So the theory was that they were sensing someone something that they saw the same dip in brain waves. And the only thing that he thought was differing in their sensory realm was the magnetic fields. But it's very early research. And then it becomes philosophical, right? Because we, we, we know that it's having an impact on the brain. Does that mean that it is necessarily a sensory experience, right? Well, I suppose it depends. No, it's not. So it might not be an extensory experience, but it might still be used. Joe Kirschvink had been invited to go and study different tribes that rely much more on navigation without GPS or talking of indigenous Australian tribes, for example, that rely, that have this extraordinary ability to kind of know where they are. And clearly they're using lots of signs in the landscapes and using where the sun is in the sky to tell time or, and use that as a compass. But maybe there's something else going on. Well, the language has a big impact, right? So they don't say you got the bug on your left leg. They say you got the bug on your northeast leg, right? And so the, that language shapes their entire perception of, of the world, right? Completely. I mean, I've just been reading about time with regard to that. And we always think of time being in front of us, the future being in front of us, and the past being behind us. But there are other tribes that think of it the other way around. Again, I think the cultural aspect of our world is really interesting when you start to think about the senses or sense of time, which we've talked about. And I think, I mean, one of the other big themes is that in order for us to experience the world, we have to take in things from different sense organs or different time periods or different directions and then process it. So in the chapter on hearing... You talk about the owl and how the owl has one ear up here and one ear down here. So it provides like stereoscopic sound and we have two eyes. And so that gives us stereoscopic vision and we have slowly arriving, right? Visual signals and very quickly arriving visual signals. And the octopus presumably has stuff coming in from eight different places. So, you know, a lot of our three-dimensionality of our experience comes from taking different signals and then combining them somehow, which is cognitively very difficult, right? I mean, I think when you're using it, your eyes, that's the signal you're relying on. That said, when things like if you're watching a movie and the sync is slightly odd or that you instantly know that something is not just the sync, but the stereo is wrong, you instantly know. So you are using these, but you're relying more on your eyes. I mean, again, I really enjoyed John Hull's book, He Was Blind, but the way he talked about how he used sound to map his environment was fascinating to my mind. This idea that he called rainfall, rain would throw a cover on the landscape so he was able to grasp it, or thunder would put a ceiling on top of the world. 
So I think subliminally, we're picking these things up all the time, this idea that we're echolocating a lot of the time. But I think while we've got the use of our eyes, that's what we're using. When the lights go out, we have to rely on different senses. Do you think people only really appreciate their their senses when they're impaired in some way? I mean, we just went through this epidemic where I guess a lot of people lost their sense of smell and they probably didn't think too much about it, right? I mean, unless it's something that was right in front of their nose, right? They didn't really probably think about how it was operating in the background until it, it went missing. Well, we're back to the quote you used right at the top of the podcast with Da Vinci paraphrasing him. Everyone looks without seeing or smells the world without appreciating sense, listens without hearing, etc. Our brain is scooting off in other directions. We're very rarely present in the sensory information that the world is giving us at that moment in time. I'm quite often time traveling in my brain to another place. I'm not present here at all. And that was part of the message of the book, which is when you take time out. I like your idea of going off into the desert and kind of rebooting our senses or having a, a kind of, I think if you take time out and focus on these senses, they'll surprise you. Well, Jackie, thanks so much for joining me. I, I really enjoyed the book and it made me acquire a greater sense of appreciation for all of my senses and also those of my fellow animals out there. And uh, of course, it made me entertain the idea of replacing my polo pony with a cheetah because I think that might, I would definitely... <laughs> you don't want them to coexist. <laughs> so, so thanks so much for that. And I look forward to the next book on time. Yes, thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. We'll talk again soon. All right, great. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.